Welcome to the PeaceWorks Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Moles. I'm a pastor and biblical counselor who helps churches and families confront the evil of domestic violence and promote healthy, God-honoring relationships. Welcome back to the PeaceWorks Podcast, everyone. On today's episode, we're going to be talking about false allegations and domestic abuse. False allegations and domestic abuse. Before we jump into that topic, let me remind you of all the wonderful things that are available to you at chrismoles.org. In addition to accessing the PeaceWorks podcast, our past uh, blogs, and other resources that we have available, uh, that's where you can find out more about PeaceWorks University. PeaceWorks University is our online membership site for people helpers who want to apply gospel-centered solutions to the problem of domestic abuse. PeaceWorks University has a vault of past teaching materials, video-based resources, master classes, toolbox items to help you in your counseling and care, and bonus resources like past conferences and even resources in Spanish. Please consider uh, PeaceWorks University. It'd be a great next step if you're benefiting from the PeaceWorks podcast. All right, so today's topic is a tricky one. It's one that I get questions about quite a bit. One question in particular that came in is, how frequent are false allegations? And uh, in particular, this person cites a 2% statistical reality and uh, wants to know how accurate that is. And, And I have a hard time with the statistical analysis of false reporting. That 2% mark um, that was cited, it's commonly used, I believe, in one study related to sexual abuse, uh, not necessarily domestic abuse. And sexual assault uh, allegations are far more rare uh, than any other form of abuse allegation and something that really the culture needs to address um, with a little bit more passion, understanding that it's very unlikely to hear a sexual abuse uh, false allegation. Now, with all that said, domestic abuse allegations that are false are also quite rare. One of the problems, however, is how we judge or how we determine something to be false. So let's just start with some of the statistics that are out there. And uh, I will say this, that probably the greatest purveyor of false allegation statistics or the places you will see them most frequently used are in ads for law firms. Now, I hate to be negative, but this is a negative for me. If you were to just go on the internet and look for statistics related to false allegations of domestic abuse, more than likely you're going to find page after page after page of um, articles written for law firms, the law firms that are willing to represent you if you're a victim of a false allegation. And I understand the marketing ploy there. I understand the tactic behind it, but I think it misrepresents a great deal of what's out there. In fact, some of the more more common studies you'll see are actually not peer-reviewed studies or meta-analysis of what's happening in the courts or within family law. A lot of what you'll see are surveys that were conducted by groups like uh, YouGov or SAVE or other groups. And I'm not saying that, that those surveys are, are garbage in any way. I'm really not. I'm saying that they are surveys 
not statistical studies or research-based studies. For instance, if you were to be contacted uh, with the following question, have you known anyone who was falsely accused of abuse? Well, that's an opinion. That's not really uh, a determination of the truth as to whether or not abuse took place or not. It's your opinion. And so if you have a study that says, you know, 17% or 10% of abuse allegations are false, then I think you really need to check and see who's conducting the research. Now, with that said, let me offer just one other thought about the statistics that are out there. If you look at, say, research related to custody, that's usually the places where most of these issues are documented. So you look at studies based on custody, things like the... Um, Oh, the effects of intimate partner violence on children study that was done in Canada or the allegations and substantiations of abuse custody in uh, the family court review or other studies in the 2000s that were conducted that had this as a secondary or a partial issue in the custody uh, studies, what you'll find are, are things that are easily twisted. For instance, one report or even a meta-analysis of some of these reports could show that as many as 75% of reports of domestic abuse related to custody issues were corroborated. So what happens is someone sees that number, 75% are corroborated. The assumption is that the other 25% minimum, right, if it's up to 75%, the other 25% minimum are false allegations. And that's not the case. That up that 25% minimum are not false allegations. It's unsubstantiated, uncorroborated criminal domestic violence. So please don't assume that because only 70 up to 75% of these uh, studied cases found to be corroborated, that that means that abuse wasn't present. Because what we're doing as people helpers, as believers, as pastors, counselors, biblical counselors, Christian counselors, we have an obligation to go beyond the legal standard to really apply the moral, right, or scriptural standard. So think for just a moment that we're in a situation where an individual has used coercive control for years. Uh, in this case, let's say that the, the husband has been denying access to um, certain financial aspects of the family. They have been coercively controlling and demeaning and destructive in their language. They have used threats of physical harm, but they've never committed what's considered an illegal act of violence. None of the overt abusive behaviors that we would consider physical or sexual violence. And within the particular state in which they live, none of the quote-unquote allegations are consistent or provable by the legal standard. Does that mean that it's a false allegation of abuse? Well, of course not. It means that the standard of abuse for that particular legal system is distinct from the moral standard of the experience of the victim or the expectations of society. So we as a church would look at a case like that and see let's say, years of coercive control, destructive behavior, demeaning language, lacking access to the financial means of the family, and, uh, as, I, as I put, uh, threats that were made towards the victim. And we would be able to see a pattern of abusive behavior and say, yes, we're dealing with a case of domestic abuse. 
Just because the legal system or the courts can't make a quote-unquote case against the perpetrator does not mean that we're dealing with a false accusation. And this is in large part one of the dilemmas of navigating domestic abuse as a Christian people helper, as a biblical counselor, Christian counselor, or pastor. Because just because we don't have a criminal case or even a civil case against an individual does not mean that we're therefore dealing with a false accusation of abuse or abuse doesn't exist. Abuse does exist outside of or um, apart from the code and standard by which the state is willing to prosecute, charge, or issue consequences. Hopefully, listener, you're seeing a big distinction here between some of the statistical analysis that view false reporting as, see, there was no criminal behavior, versus false reporting as in, there's no abuse whatsoever. And I think that's an important distinction for us as people helpers to make. For instance, I've worked hundreds upon hundreds of domestic abuse cases in the last 15 or so years. These cases are all difficult and complex, and there's many moving parts. People will often ask me, have I ever encountered a false accusation of domestic abuse? And the reality is, yes. Yes, I have. They are few and far between. They are rare. Um, They are defined differently. They uh, have occurred in different circumstances and situations. Uh, Two of the most prominent, though, that I recall, and I'll just give you a brief rundown without revealing too much information. One... Uh, was a case in which an emergency order of protection was issued following a conflict between two partners. Uh, The police responded, did their job. Uh, The magistrate issued the emergency order of protection, and the following week they appeared before a family law judge. Within a matter of minutes, the judge determined that it was not a case of domestic abuse. As most everyone involved with the case could see, it was a case of trying to use the court system. He immediately uh, corrected the situation, and the accused perpetrator uh, was out very little, a little bit of time, less than a week. I think that's a pretty good turnaround for confronting a false allegation, and something that I've seen time and time again within the court system. False allegations are hard to maintain. Lies are hard to continue to tell. The other most prominent was a case in which the, um, the presumed victim in the case Uh, had early onset dementia and her health issues were contributing to paranoia that was constructing and concocting cases, situations that were a little far afield. But everyone involved took them seriously, took the proper precautions for her safety, and the presumed or accused perpetrator was given an opportunity over the course of a couple weeks to work with those people to set things right. Eventually, a um, professional was able to provide the correct diagnosis and everyone was able to realize that um, the presumed victim in the case was hurting beyond uh, what we suspected and that there was medical issues involved. Again, very quick turnaround and not something that was prolonged because, again, false accusations are hard to prove, they're hard to substantiate, and they're hard to maintain. So going back again to the statistics, most of the time we are dealing with a very, very low rate of false accusations. And what's often considered false is really um, unsubstantiated as far as uncorroborated. 
they end up not meeting the standard of the court. But do they meet the standard of biblical care, right, and biblical confrontation? And I would say that 99% of these cases absolutely do. Uh, most of these cases do require intervention on behalf of the church, especially if the civil authorities cannot be counted on because it does not fall within their purview. There's definitely a Romans 13 and Matthew 18 aspect to domestic abuse care where we must balance that thin line between trusting the authorities to do their job but then not advocating our job because the case we're working does not fall squarely within their purview. I hope that makes sense. So really, we're judging beyond a legal standard to a moral and biblical standard. The other thing about false accusations that is often, come, often comes up is a, a standard by which we hold people accountable only by the accounts that we hear. And we fail to take into consideration uh, the realities of fear, threat, pain, and harm. As if to say that a accuser's voice and a presumed perpetrator's voice are the same. And good work, people who've been doing this work for a long time will tell you that their voice does not have equal weight. Not at the beginning. At the beginning, we take into consideration aspects of fear and threat. Perpetrators do not experience the same fear and threat as victims because they're perpetrators. So they will remain calm and cool and collected. And so false allegations as a claim will seem somewhat reasonable because the person being accused will remain in control, while the person doing the accusing will have doubt, guilt, shame associated with their own victimhood. So we have to listen to things like fear, threat, pain, and harm. Listening beyond the tone of voice, listening beyond the words that are being said to what's being experienced. The lived experience of a victim is far more complex than the lived experience of a perpetrator. Let me say that again. The lived experience of a victim is far more complex and difficult to read than the lived experiences of a perpetrator. Because a perpetrator is generally in control while a victim is generally being controlled. So understanding that will help us navigate the situation that this is not a he said, she said when it comes to determining whether an allegation is false. This is an uh, listening to the fear, pain, harm, and threat and understanding that it has significant weight to the people helper. Again, not functioning under legal standards, right? Not looking to prove a case, but looking to care for an individual. And then third, something else to keep in mind is to understand the distinction between incidents and experience or patterns. Again, going back to the legal standard, the, the predominant way in which quote-unquote false allegations are recorded or documented or claims are made is that we're talking about individual incidents. But abuse as a construct goes beyond individual incidences and includes the whole experience of the individual being threatened, harmed, diminished, or destroyed. It's about patterns of abuse far more than it is about incidents of abuse. And just because an incident cannot be corroborated by the courts, again, doesn't mean that the pattern is not present or that the incident at hand is not part of a larger pattern of threat, harm, pain, and fear. Therefore, false allegations of domestic abuse are far less significant than we like to make them. 
In fact, I would say that statistically speaking, you take all the studies, all the research, all the thoughts, all the perspectives, and even what we've laid out here today, the distinction between the um, legal aspects and the moral aspects of abuse. And false allegations of domestic abuse are far less significant, as far as an issue goes, than non-reporting. In fact, what is a greater tragedy is not the frequency of false allegations. The greater tragedy is the frequency of non-reporting. That individuals do not feel safe or secure or able to seek help because of the pain, fear, threat, and harm that they're experiencing at the hands of their partner. Statistically speaking, non-reporting, failure to report, is a far greater societal issue than false reporting. False reports, when they do occur, tend to be handled quickly, swiftly, and effectively. And I'm sure there's always a horror story out there. But again, when you're talking about the numbers, false reporting are typically handled swiftly, correctly. They're corrected relatively fast when comparison to other aspects. Where non-reporting and false reporting remain a huge problem within the work as victims are less safe, less secure, and have less opportunities to report and seek safety. That's why the church's intervention and response is so important uh, to this problem. As again, we have more freedom to address the moral, sinful, and biblical aspects of this problem as opposed to the legal aspects. And we have resources available to us that perhaps social services, um, the courts, or specific programs or institutions will never have. I hope that was helpful as we just walk through the significance of false reporting and hopefully crushed a few myths and expanded a few points of thinking so that we can be better uh, at helping victims and securing safety for those um, involved in these devastating relationships. I appreciate you guys so much joining in for the PeaceWorks podcast, being part of the PeaceWorks family. Be sure to head on over to chrismoles.org and uh, yeah, get to know more about us and our resources and be sure to check out PeaceWorks University, which I believe is your next best step uh, after learning from the PeaceWorks podcast. Thank you again and God bless.